Music is powerful, amen? It is powerful. Music has a way, music has a way of getting into one's heart, uh, maybe even into one's spirit. And so whether you love the blues or if you're a bougie classical listener, or maybe you listen to R&B or metal or rap or even, yes, you country western fans, there is no doubt that music does get to you. And it seems to me, it seems to me, among others, that music, that music is somehow infused in the very creation itself. Uh, the psalmist writes this. He says, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Listen, and let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his Narnia Chronicles, he envisions the creation of Narnia, this world, he envisions the creation of Narnia being brought into existence as Aslan the lion sings. He sings a perfect note. And as the creation advances, it becomes not just a perfect note, but a perfect melody. Uh, personally, I, I love the picture that perhaps our creator brought the world into existence through music, through a song. I know the scriptures say God said, but if you've ever been to a musical, it could be that he just said it like this, like it could just be a note, right? You know, the thing, about, the thing about a good melody, the thing about a good melody is, of course, that it's sticky, right? It gets stuck in your head sometimes uh, far too easily. I know, I know that we've all had this experience. This happens in our home all the time. When the last song that we heard, or maybe even just two lines of the song that we last heard is repeated throughout the day, sometimes in your brain and other times out loud to all of the people who are around you who get to listen to the last song that you listened to eight hours ago because you're still singing it. Why is that? It's because melodies, right, melodies, they're, they're sticky, right? They get stuck in your head easily. Melodies are, in fact, memorable. In fact, we, we bank on this, actually, when we teach young people. Uh, for example, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing you a song. <clears throat> I'm gonna hum you a song. And uh, we'll just see if you know what the song is. All right? Are you ready for that? <laughs> no response. That's good. I don't know if that means you're ready or like, no, this is too much at 1027 on a Sunday morning. Let me, just, let me just hum it for you, and then we'll see if you know it. All right? All right, here, here it is. It's dum, 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 dum. Dum, 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 dum. All right, uh, just by show of hands, how many of you think you know what this song is? Yeah? Okay, Wh what is the song? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That is correct. That is, that is correct. Some of you are like, no, it's not. That is not the song that was in my head. Was there another, another option, Lori? Oh, it is the ABCs. Yes, that is also true. They're both correct. Is there another one? Anybody else have something else? Baba Black Sheep, says the kindergarten teacher. So well done. Yes. There are, in fact, seven songs. There are seven songs that are written to this one melody. It's interesting, right? Melodies, melodies are 
memorable. This melody of the ABCs of Ba Ba Black Sheep of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, right? It gets tons of play because it is a jingle that tingles, right? It's memorable. It sticks with you and me. You see, music has a way of getting into the heart and to the spirit. And when it's attached to words or words attached to it, it also gets into the mind. And friends, we have been exploring the songs of the church, these memorable melodies and the truth behind them in our series over the past two weeks. And today we pick up this beloved hymn of the church, which we just sang, the church's one foundation. Now this is a a text, the text of this particular hymn was written in 1860, 1860, uh, by an Anglican priest in England by the name of Samuel Stone. And Stone wrote this hymn, or at least the text of this hymn, as a response to fractions that were happening in the church, in particular in South Africa. And so Stone, he actually wrote the text for 12 hymns, and all of them correspond to the Apostles' Creed. He was attaching them to the teachings of the church. Now, this hymn, The Church's One Foundation, is connected to the the third part of the Apostles' Creed, where we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, and the communion of saints. In other words, this hymn that we just sang is designed, it's designed to teach us something about the nature of the church. It's supposed to teach us something about the nature of God's gathered people, this this communion of saints. The hymn hymn is to teach us something about who we are as the church. Now, interestingly, if we look through the Gospels, Jesus has almost nothing to say about church. Now, I know that sounds, that sounds a little strange, so let me back up and just, just explain for you what I mean. Jesus has lots of things to say about how our lives are supposed to look if we embrace the kingdom of heaven which has come on earth and he's proclaiming. Jesus has lots to say about how you posture your heart and your life if we're going to live in him, but, but church, or at least, at least how we think about church, he has almost nothing to say. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus mentions church only three times. Two of those times is in the exact same account. But one of particular note for us this morning comes to us in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks Peter and really the rest of the disciples as well, a really important question. And they, they, and in this case, Peter, answers. And what Peter answers makes all of the difference. Right? It's, it's like that moment when you, when you look at your kids and you say to them, listen, I'm going to ask you a question now, and how you answer this question will determine whether the rest of your afternoon is awesome or not awesome. Right? Did you or did you not eat my leftover pulled pork sandwich? Like, that matters. How you answer that question is going to determine your life for the next three hours. It's that kind of moment, right? Jesus is trying to put out in front of the disciples a question, and how they answer it will determine their future. 
So let's look at that together. Why don't you grab a Bible? Let's come to Matthew chapter 16 just briefly. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Paper, digital, doesn't matter. Just grab one. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 15. So Matthew 16, starting at verse 15. 15. Now, a little context as you're getting there. This is Jesus, the disciples, and they're in the area of Caesarea Philippi. This is about as far away as you can get from Jerusalem, right? This is, this is as far away as you can get from the heart of Israel. And he's out there with his disciples, and he asks sort of this kind of question, like, who do people think that I am? And the disciples are like, well, they have this list, right? This laundry list of things that people are saying about Jesus. And then in verse 15, He becomes more pointed. He says, yes, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? So the question question is simple. Who do you say that I am? And in the same way, right, of the pulled pork sandwich, like how you answer is going to matter. It's important. So Matthew 16 Verse 16, 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but rather by my father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says, and this is super important, church. I want us to drill down on what Jesus says here. He says, and I tell you that you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my, here it is, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. It will not prevail. Of the three times that Jesus mentions church, It is here that he's going to build his church on a rock. Now, again, some important pieces here. Jesus Jesus reaffirms Simon's name. Uh, Some think they gave him this name. Other people think that Peter's always had his name. But, But nevertheless, Jesus says, you are Peter. Now, the Greek word here, a little nerdiness for us this morning, the Greek word here is petros. And Petros literally translated means like uh, little rock, like pebble, right? That's what he's saying. You are Petros. You're, you're a little pebble. Not in my shoe, not like, not irritating, just, just a small rock. That's all. You're just, you're just a little pebble. So you are Petros. And then he says, he says, you are a little rock and on the, now the Greek word here is Petra. Now, to our ears, that sounds very similar, but they mean entirely different things. Petras means pebble. Petra means like mountain cliff. Different, right? You are a little pebble, and I, I'm going to build on the mountain cliff, I'm going to build on this mountain my church. Now, for those of you who are perhaps asking this question in your head, or maybe you come out of a Roman Catholic background, this is one of the places that we differ dramatically from Roman Catholics, who I believe, I believe, miss the nuance of the words Petros and Petra. They miss the nuance of little pebble 
and mountain cliff. The Roman Catholic Church would say that the church is built on Petros. It's built on Peter. This is where the papacy begins, by the way. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to build my church on the Petros, on Peter. He says, I'm going to build my church on the what? The Petra, on the mountain. And what is the mountain in this context? It's simply this. It is the profession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the mountain. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. So if if we're going to restate what's happening in this text, Jesus is saying, you are a little pebble. And I'm going to, on the, I'm, I'm on, the, on the mountain, I'm going to build my, and he uses the word church here in Greek, ekklesia. It means like the, the gathering of people. I'm going to build my body of people on the profession that I am the Messiah, that I am the son of the living God. And so Samuel Stone in 1860 could begin our hymn simply by saying that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Jesus Christ is, as Messiah, as Lord, as King, the foundation upon which the body of believers is built. We sit on Jesus as Messiah. But it is, church, it's also important, right? It's, it's important, how are we supposed to be in a relationship then? If we're built on Jesus, if he's the foundation, what is the relationship that we share together? How are we supposed to be in a relationship with our Lord and King? Now, to do that, we have to understand the relationship between a husband and a wife, a stone writes, we sang it, and you may not have caught it, so let me, let me just kind of recapture it for us. In verse 1 of the hymn, Stone writes this. He says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, that is the church, she is his new creation by water and the word. And from heaven, he came and he sought her, listen, to be his holy bride. He came from heaven, and he sought her, the church, his people, to be his holy bride. It's it's this image that Stone uses, this image which actually is littered throughout the Scripture of God's people as a bride and God or Jesus himself as the groom. It is this image that tells us something about how it is we as the church relate to the foundation, which is Jesus. You see, since the, since the very beginning, God has desired for us to be in an intentional and intimate relationship with him. When we look at the account in Genesis 1, and then again at the beginning of Genesis 2, we see this intentional and intimate relationship between the creator and the creation, between God the Father and Adam 
and Eve. They are living in intentionality together and in intimate ways together. That was God's design, that we would rest on Him inside of this intentional and intimate relationship. But we know, right, we know when we get into the account of Genesis chapter 3 that that relationship is fractured. There is a, there is a divorce that happens when Eve and then Adam, they decide that they would rather create their own foundation than rest on the foundation of the Father. There is a, there is a divorce that happens when, when Eve and Adam decide ultimately that they want to go their own way rather than live in relationship with the Father. There is a, there is a divorce that happens when, when Eve and Adam ultimately decide that their own needs were more important than the relationship needs. And so there in Genesis chapter 3, they strike out on their own. And since that time, really since the end of Genesis chapter 3, God has been doing his part to rekindle that original relationship, a relationship that is both intentional and intimate. And so with Abram and the covenant where God says, listen, you and your descendants are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. He's trying to rekindle that relationship with Moses and the rescuing of God's people from slavery, with with Joshua and the deliverance of God's people into the promised land, with the prophets, right, beginning, like begging, begging, begging God's people not to whore themselves out to the gods of culture and the surrounding people. And finally, finally we find ourselves at Jesus, the Word made flesh, who moves into the neighborhood, who comes with intentionality and with intimacy to draw us close to Him. You see, the picture of a husband and a wife gives us a picture of intentionality and intimacy. And so if we want to understand what it means to live as the church built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, then we look we look at that image that Stone used in the hymn. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. See, the best picture, the best picture of what a relationship between a husband and a wife should look like falls in Ephesians chapter 5. That reading we heard Katie read just moments ago. And friends, it is a reading, it is a reading that I think has received a lot of flack and gruff over the years, a reading that to our modern ears is often misheard. Now, I recognize that some of you, perhaps after hearing the reading, are thinking that is a very bold text for Father's Day, and you are waiting with bated breath on how Pastor Brian is going to talk about submission. But... Some of you are going to be disappointed because the thrust, the thrust of today's message is not actually about marriage, or at least as we think about it. And friends, this, this interestingly is where it gets really tricky because some of you, if you heard that text well, you're probably thinking like, well, isn't it a marriage text? Is it? It's a good question. Let's let's look at it together. You'll need to take that Bible that you already got out. We're going to go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to start actually at the end of the text and work backwards to the front of the text. So Ephesians chapter 5, 
verse 32 is where we're going to start. Now, again, some context, right? St. Paul is writing to Christians at Ephesus. He has spent three chapters explaining that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Chapters 1 through 3, this is what it's about. Chapters 4 through 6, then, is about how do we live out that relationship, So in chapters 4, he's talking about what it means to be united as the body of Christ and yet have different gifts. We get to chapter 5, and what is it like to live together? And then he drills down in verses 21 through the end, and he drills down really to what it looks like in families between a husband and a wife. But I want to start at 32. So in verse 32, as he's wrapping up this section, here's what he says. He says, this is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's really interesting to me that if we back up through that whole text, again, which Katie read moments ago, this text of Ephesians 5, 21 through the end, it is, it is a marriage text. But it is also a text about the relationship that Christ has with his church and the relationship that the church has with Christ. And so we're going we're gonna to put on these glasses, really, of St. Paul, who sees in earthly marriage a picture that is beyond earth. What he sees in earthly marriage and the relationship that a husband and a wife share together as they live out this love of God in that marriage, what he sees, right, he's wearing glasses that sees a much larger picture of the relationship, that intentional and intimate relationship that the church has with Christ. So I want to back up for just a moment now to verse 25. And I want us to be reading this text in the same way that Paul is, to see this a little bit larger, to see the bigger picture of the church and Jesus. So in verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And here it is, listen. And gave himself up for her. So in the picture, Jesus is the husband. Saying love the church, love the church by giving yourself up for her. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture and reminder for you and me that if if we as the church are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's not just that we profess him to be the Messiah, but that you and I, we are built on a foundation of love. And that love is exercised when Jesus gives his life for you and for me. When we look at the cross of Christ, when we look at him staggering for breath, when we look at a crown of thorns that's been pressed deeply into the scalp, when we look at that, we need to see love there. That he, the groom in this case, is willing to give his whole self in love. Why? Paul goes on. He says in verse 26, why would he do this? To make her holy. To make her right. 
to perfect her, to put her back into a relationship with the Father. How does he do this? Well, certainly as he gave himself, but also, Paul says, through the washing of water through the Word. You know, when we look at the cross of Christ, we see love. When we look at a baptismal font, we ought to see the same thing. That there in the washing of water through the Word, you and I brought into, with intentionality, brought into a relationship with the Father. It is there, actually, in the waters of baptism where God says, you are my daughter, and you are my son, washing us from all of the sin that we possess. Paul would say in Romans 6, it's there, actually, that we are buried with Christ so that we can be raised just as He was raised. And he does all of this, St. Paul says here, he does all of this in verse 27. He does all of this to present her, right, to present her as a radiant, as a radiant, unblemished, unstained, perfect, perfect bride. So God has been trying to rekindle that relationship since the very beginning. The church, friends, you and I, this gathering of saints, we are built on the foundation of Christ and His work of love in a cross, in a font, so that He can present us to the Father as holy and perfect and beloved to restore, to restore a relationship that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. Stone, when he writes this hymn, is having us come to this image that the church's one foundation is Jesus. But if, if we're going to sit on Jesus, if we're going to rest on Jesus, then we have to know the work of Jesus. And it is to give himself and to present us as blameless. Paul would go on, Paul would go on to say, e, just as Christ loves himself, he will love the church. Everything that Christ has, everything that Jesus has, when he was human, he receives so that you and I can receive the same things. All of that healing, all of that forgiveness, all of that release from bondage, all of that that he proclaims and does is yours and mine. He loves us in the same way he loves himself. You can see here in verse 31, St. Paul, reckoning with this, interestingly, this text from Genesis chapter 1, where he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, intentional and intimate. You can see St. Paul seeing the picture of Jesus the Son being sent from the Father, leaving the Father, so that He would cling to us as the church, so He would cling to us to be put together like a bride and a groom, and the two would become one. 
Friends, this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church resting on the foundation that is Christ Jesus and His work for you and me. So that when finally Paul gets to 32, this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The question becomes then, how do we as a church live in response to all of this work of the groom, of the husband? And so we back up then to verse 22, where Paul writes this. He says, wives or church, bride, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Submit yourselves to the King, to the Lord, to the one who has given Himself for our sake. He is, as Paul says here, He is the head, and we are the body. We submit ourselves, friends, as we come to His authoritative Word, as we rest in this Word, as we allow this Word to shape and form us in faith. We submit to His leadership in all the things of our lives, not just on a Sunday morning, but how it is we live in our relationships, whether as husbands and wives or as parents to children or as good citizens in this blessed country. All of that shaped and informed, submitted to the way that Christ would have us run. Why? Because He's given Himself for us and presented us as spotless and blameless and without stain. He calls us sons and daughters because He came from heaven and He sought us to be His holy bride. And as Stone writes, with His own blood, He bought us. And for our life, He died. Good melodies are memorable, and words, when attached to it, get into our spirit and our heart and our mind. This hymn is certainly worth remembering. In Jesus' name, amen.